Seltzer Kings podcasts. Hi, it's me. It's Dave. Thanks for listening. Uh, a couple of things before I start the show this week. This is an episode about 9-11. It's a personal episode for me. I've never talked about 9-11 before on the show, and I don't usually talk about 9-11 in my life, but I felt like it was the proper thing to do this week. There are some jokes in this show, uh, and uh, I left them in because when I first started writing the show, I didn't know where I was going with it, but have no fear. I didn't make fun of 9-11. I'm not that big of an asshole. And finally, uh, we don't make a lot of money off ads in this show, but I took the ads out entirely because I didn't even feel like the 87 cents that I would have made from this episode was appropriate for the, for the content. Uh, again, you don't don't feel like you have to listen to the show if you're tired of 9/11 or it, it, it you know it triggers you. Uh, skip this week. I totally understand. I wish I could skip this week too. Come back next week. We're talking about Polly Shore. See, you take the bad and you get a little treat afterwards. Thanks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you decided to do a show on your ostensible comedy podcast about 9-11, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 330, the obligatory 9-11 edition of the show, where we talk about, well, what everyone is talking about this week because we're forced to. Stay tuned. What the Hell You Thinking Podcast is brought to you by Fast Eddie's Ground Zero Souvenir Shop, where we remember national tragedy with outrageously priced bobbleheads and snow globes. No visit to New York City is complete without a visit to the site of the worst terror attack in U.S. history and the scene of thousands of deaths. What better way to remember America's pain than with overpriced junk manufactured in China? From our Twin Towers fondue fountains to our tower-collapsed snow globes with genuine Ground Zero ash and soot inside, Fast Eddie's Ground Zero Souvenirs offer a way to commemorate those we lost with a significant markup. Anyone could buy a Never Forget t-shirt, but only Fast Eddie's has genuine certified pieces of the World Trade Center dug up from a landfill in Staten Island and packaged in cheap lumps of lucite. Fast Eddie's Ground Zero Souvenirs. Prove to the terrorists they haven't won by buying tasteless tchotchkes with our flag on it. What better way to remember 9-11 than with a Twin Tower sale? Right now, you can get any size mattress for a twin price. Store-wide sale all day long. We'll never forget. 20 years ago today, America was struck. That's how all these 20-year respective pieces are starting, and you probably heard more than you ever wanted to hear. I understand. I understand if you don't want to hear another. But I've never talked about 9-11 on this podcast for a couple of reasons, one of which is not a subject that lends itself to jokes, if you can call what I do on this podcast jokes. Also, I was in D.C. on the day that it happened, and one of my friends was directly involved in the attack on the Pentagon. Spoiler alert, they were fine. So, it's personal to me, and I've never mined the story for content, that is, until today. But you have my solemn vow, this show will not be like my callous and crass look into the Challenger explosion, where I gleefully repeated jokes that some found juvenile and offensive, and that's because they were juvenile and offensive. So instead of dwelling on remembering the day in detail this week, we're going to be talking about how we remember the day, both as a society and personally. 
And every single year, we all gather in small groups sometime on or around September 11th and recount our own personal, where were we when we heard? It's an American tradition, really. I imagine in the decades after 1776, people gather out on the 4th and recall exactly where they were when they heard the colonies broke away from England and that America was now our own country. I remember it was December of that year when I was mucking out the mule shed when old Jebediah Cooter come running into the yard yelling that we was free of the British. I mean, I'd never seen no British living in each crossfart New York, but I still remember holding that shovel full of mule shit when he told me he was independent like it was yesterday. Repeat ad nauseum for each major event in history as applicable. So, uh, that being said, better get my mule shit shovel out and tell you good folks where I was on the fateful day. I was in bed. I'd worked a midnight shift the Monday before at the university where I was a campus cop in the dispatch office. I got off work around 6 a.m. on Tuesday, drove home to Fort Washington, Maryland, about 20 miles away. I farted around the house a little while, then I went to bed. I was good and deep asleep when my bedroom door burst open and my best friend and housemate Eric started shouting at me that I had to wake up. And I suspect I had the reaction most people would have being woken from a sound sleep by a shouting man. Probably something along the lines of, what the fuck is your problem? That's when he said I had to get out of bed because, quote, we are at war. Now, I'd been friends with Eric for over 10 years, so I knew he had a strange sense of humor, so I reacted with the sort of attitude I think most people would have in that moment. I told him good luck with that, pulled the covers back over my head, and tried to go back to sleep. That's when uh, he ripped the covers off my bed and shouted at me that I needed to get up because shit was going down. We'd been in the military together, so I could tell by this reaction that he was indeed talking about something serious. So I staggered out of bed, walked downstairs right around the time the plane hit the Pentagon. And that woke me up because our housemate Kip, yeah, that's his real name, I know. Kip worked at the Pentagon and now shit was real serious. Timelines get a little blurry after this. Eric and our other housemate, Paul, it was a very full house. We're both cops out at Andrews Air Force Base and they were getting their shit together to head to base. We heard from Kip's sister, whom Eric was dating at the time, that Kip was okay and was helping evacuate people from the area around the Pentagon. Eric and Paul left for the base and I was sitting there watching the news. I'd been out of the military for about four years at this point. Even my reserve time was done, so I was feeling pretty helpless. And I decided I would call work and see if they needed me to come in because, you know, Georgetown University was only five miles away from the Pentagon and therefore possibly a target, I guess. They said, yeah, come on in. So I got dressed, got in my car, and started to drive into D.C. only to get about a mile from my house to find the road closed to traffic so people could leave D.C., Four lanes of cars on Highway 210 driving away from the district, and the radio was saying that it was like that all around the city. So I called back to work, said I couldn't get in, drove home, and went back to bed. What the felt outs was I going to do? That night, I came to campus around probably 6, 7 o'clock. They were letting essential people back into the district at this time, and I don't know that I was essential, but I had a uniform and a badge, and I figured they'd let me through, and they did. My clearest memory of that whole day was seeing the smoke rising from the Pentagon and turning into Georgetown just in front of the Key Bridge to find a Humvee with a loaded 60 caliber machine gun pointing right at me. Now, I'd spent 10 years in the military and 
I'd had more than a few machine guns pointed in my directions as I drove towards them, but they were always in front of some sort of compound or berm-surrounded tent city, miles away from anywhere. The kind of places that maybe people like to shoot rockets or mortars into just for funsies. And those places had one thing in common. They were always in other countries like, say, Saudi Arabia or Kuwait. And I want to remember now that I thought that these two things were directly connected, but that probably isn't true. It's the sort of thing your brain, your brain puts together after time and exposition. I probably didn't even know the word Al-Qaeda when I turned into Georgetown that night. All I did know is... You don't want to drive into the capital of your nation to find a machine gun pointed at you. That's, that's not good for your state of mind, but there it was. Eric was right. We were indeed at war. Or rather, we were getting ready to go to war because I didn't see any of my housemates for about a week. I knew they'd pass through the house, but I didn't see them until things settled down considerably. Much of the next few weeks is a blur now. 20 years will do that to you. I remember being thanked by college students for protecting them, which was ridiculous. I wasn't protecting shit. I was just as lost and scared as they were. I remember feeling helpless and useless and needing to do something, anything. And that's how I found myself sitting outside an Air Force recruiter's office sometime later in September, thinking about walking in and re-enlisting. Sitting in my car, I suddenly had a very clear thought that this was a very crazy idea because we were already in Afghanistan and some fucker was sending anthrax to the mail. I'd done my bit. I started my car and I drove home. Everyone has their story. This one's mine, I guess. And uh, admittedly, some of us who were somewhat closer to what happened have a rather different story than, say, old Ed Thumberger from Snot Blast, Iowa, who wants to tell his tale like he was the last line of defense against the terrorist hordes down at the tractor supply store. Thank you for your service, Ed. And every year we tell this story, we embellish it, we refine it, you know, bullshit it up like humans do. We all like to think we remember exactly where we were and what exactly happened, but most of us have all the details wrong because that's just the way the brain works. For all I know, I was wide awake, buck naked, and jerking off when Eric busted into my bedroom that morning. That probably wasn't the case, and Eric wouldn't know because he would have wiped that memory from his mind, sure as hell. But I'm fairly certain that the bones of the story that I just told you are pretty close to how things went down. Memories are a funny thing. Not funny ha-ha, but funny peculiar, and not just in their mechanics or their notorious unreliability, but... How we use those memories. We say things like, remember the Alamo. Or at least they say it in Texas, not so much in New York. Or we say things like, we'll never forget 9-11. And each year we make a show of never forgetting. And all the while, each year we lose a little bit more as we get further and further away from what happened and deeper in the years of what happened since 2001. The wars, the crises, the economic collapse, the internecine political warfare that dominates our national discourse, the growing ecological collapse, and of course, the pandemic, you know, the grinding litany of life in the 21st centuries, and still every year we say that we remember 9-11. But we don't really remember. We don't think about the strange silence of a sky without planes. Georgetown University was one of the main approaches, was underneath one of the main approaches in a national airport, and the roar of air traffic in the background was just 
always there. You didn't think about it until it was gone. It was only two days before we could fly again, but the absence of those flights was palpable. Years later, as a matter of fact, it was last year, I was hit with that same sense of loss and emptiness during the height of the early lockdown here in New York. I was outside along the Hudson River here in New York City trying to get some sunshine in the midst of the terror of those days, and I noticed how the skies were empty. The Hudson's a major traffic air traffic corridor here in the city, and it was just as empty as the skies over Georgetown were in those few days after 9-11. And I felt that same sense of powerless that I did 20 years ago. The same frustration, the same loss of control that we all try so hard not to remember. Like we don't want to remember the smoke. The clock tower of the Healy building on Georgetown campus had this big surveillance camera. It could pan and zoom. And it was really just a, you could see everywhere all over D.C. And it gave this stunning view of the burning Pentagon. That sullen finger of smoke that rose into the air for what seemed like days in my recollection. But it couldn't have been days, not at the Pentagon. That was, that was in Manhattan. But I remember it that way. But in New York, it was real for days and days and days, streams of smoke rising out of that wreckage. People who lived here in 2001 tell me that you could smell it everywhere, all over the city in North Jersey. The smell of deep fires fed by the mountains of rubble. They said you could smell the bodies burning, which wasn't true, but felt to them like it was. We don't remember the smoke and how it seemed that it would smolder forever and the fires would never go out. We try really hard not to remember that because memories are funny like that. We like to remember the heroes and everyone was a hero for a little while. We remember Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor we called him. I never really knew what it was that Rudy was doing that made him a hero. It looked to me like Rudy was just being on TV like, why the fuck was Rudy on Saturday Night Live a few weeks later? No one remembers Rudy like that anymore. He's just a drunk lunatic sweating off his hair dye. Hell, even George W. Bush was a big fucking hero. His speech at Ground Zero in the bullhorn where he said that soon the people that took down these towers would be hearing from all of us. Very John Wayne. But Bush wasn't a hero, he was an incompetent fuck that let the towers be knocked down in the first place. You want a hero? How about the kids that ran the campus ambulance service that wanted to take their ambulance across the bridge to the Pentagon? These were college kids. I mean, sure, they were certified EMTs, but they carried drunk kids to the emergency room or responded to twisted ankles on winter ice. And these kids wanted to drive into the middle of that just because they thought they could help. Now, I like to remember that it was me that told them not to go over there, that there were plenty of people there. But it's almost certain that it wasn't me who told them that, and that I heard about it later because we all like to place ourselves in the action and remember that. So I remember it as me being the voice of experience and wisdom, but I'm pretty certain that's bullshit and it was somebody else. We like to remember things that didn't happen, not long after I moved to, D to New York City in 2005, I was told that on the day of 9-11, the street gangs of New York went wild because all the cops were downtown. 
lurid stories of murders as they took the chance to settle their old scores. But you know what? Never fucking happened. Indeed, to the best of anyone's knowledge, there was only one murder unrelated to the World Trade Center that happened on 9-11-2001. It, uh, it remains unsolved, if you were curious. A Polish immigrant by the name of Henrik Suiak was murdered in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Siwiak worked at a construction site near Ground Zero, which obviously was closed for the foreseeable future. So he immediately went looking for another job and he found an opening working at night at a grocery store in Brooklyn. And he left for work that night wearing a camouflage coat and pants and he was shot and killed shortly before midnight on the 11th. No one remembers Henrik much. They would remember things that didn't happen like gang wars. But his family... They remember, and they think that Henrik might have been shot because he was dark-haired and spoke with a heavy accent. He was Polish. And they thought that maybe someone saw him in his camo and heard his accent and thought he was a terrorist, which, of course, admit that they thought he was Arabic. We don't like to remember that part of 9-11 either. Writer Dan Barry wrote in the New York Times this week for the anniversary, quote, What exactly do you remember? What stories do you tell when a casual conversation warps into a therapy session? What stories do you keep to yourself? And what instantly transports you back to that deceptively sunny Tuesday morning? Inevitably, someday, there will be no one alive with a personal narrative of September 11th. Inevitably, the emotional impact of the day will fade a little bit, and then a little bit more, as time transforms a visceral lived experience into dry history lessons. This transition has already begun. Ask any high school history teacher. But for now, for many, September 11th remains a lived experience. We have our stories, our possibly altered memories to share or not to share on the anniversary or any other day of the year. We might tell our stories to hold back the inevitable erasure of time. We might tell them to help us process the moment or to explain why we grow quiet whenever we hear Bruce Springsteen's The Rising. Then again... We might keep our stories locked in some leaky compartment for fear of being perceived as another 9-11 narcissist, the hero of our own narrative. Or maybe we keep them to ourselves out of simple reverence, unquote. Remember when I told you about that trip to the recruiter's office? I mean, that was just a couple of minutes ago. You probably do remember that. That happened. It's definitely real. And I couldn't tell you the day or anything or exactly how long it was after September 11th, but I remember going... I remember sitting outside for a few minutes and I remember leaving. What I don't clearly remember is exactly what I was thinking when I left. All I can remember now is how my brain pieces it together. Because I remember thinking that the war to come was going to be long, painful, and bloody. But I don't know why I thought that. I only remember it that way now because the wars that were to come were long, painful, and bloody. Memory's funny that way. It likes to graft on ergo propter hocs to the post hocs in our brain. There's no way I could have known what was to come. Or maybe I could have. I think a lot of people knew, but we didn't want to think about it. The wound of 9-11 was raw and bleeding, and we wanted to hurt someone. We needed to punch back harder than we were hit. All I know now is I had done my turn. And this was someone else's war. Was I afraid? You're goddamn right I was afraid. I was fucking terrified. 
Everyone was afraid. We don't like to remember that part of it, do we? We like to remember yellow ribbons and American flags and the sure and swift punishments and the country songs about getting your ass kicked courtesy of the red, white, and blue and oh, so many screaming eagles. I don't know why a screaming eagle was necessary to prove to ourselves that we were not frightened, but clearly it was, and we were. We just don't want to remember it. Either way, I was scared of what was to come. I was scared from what happened, and I was scared enough that I wanted to stay out of it. What I do remember is grieving. It was the last time we grieved. Not Individually, of course, individually, we feel grief as we always have, but collectively, socially, nationally, 9-11 was the last time we grieved. Maybe we've grieved so much at 9-11, we've forgotten how to grieve now, or maybe we just ran out of collective grief to give. But in the days and weeks following, we publicly grieved for the dead, and I think we all grieved for the world that was because we all knew It, too, had collapsed in the dust and smoke that morning. Never again would America feel safe. Never again would we not need the nightlight of a militarized state to pretend we weren't afraid of the dark. How do we deal with these memories? How do we cope with their selective nature, their flaws, and the pain that they bring up every year? For those who lost someone this day, I give no answer because how could I? But what of us that lost something we can't put our finger on, something intangible but beloved? How do we cope with the loss of our sense of safety, our sense of place in the world? How does a nation of people come to grips with the loss of innocence or our sense of our country having lost its way? Is remembering what happened helping? I don't have the answer to that because how could I? Maybe we should close the book on 9-11. Now with this anniversary and the ending of the first war spawned out of those fires. Maybe it's the time to stop making new memories and leave those we have to the historians who will sort them, categorize them, and place them in the context of the world that came before and after. Someday in a century when all of us who lived through that day are gone and only our recollections recorded in the moment and the decades following, perhaps our thoughts on what happened that day could become clearer when they're unclouded by the smoke and dust of our perception and only the facts and names remain to speak for what happened 20 years ago this week. And never forget can be a slogan on a t-shirt in a museum instead of a mandate to the victims of a time that we can never forget even if we wanted to because we keep bringing it up every goddamn year. We keep being shown the images of those planes, the fallen bodies, and the broken lives. And it would be one thing if we could learn something from our memories, however flawed, but we haven't. So if we can't remember it correctly, maybe it would be better for us to forget.
Nickels and dimes, memories and wine. She's on his mind once again. The same old stew, the same old food, played by the rules but didn't win. There's no love in his heart that he can't lose. He tried forgetting, but he knows that it's no use. He's got a fool heart in memory. And he sits patiently as she walks out the door. He's got a fool heart in memory. And he sits patiently here every night so it can fool him more. She was his girl, his only world That string of pearls that slipped away A thousand times, a thousand times He doesn't mind what they say He fills the jukebox and plays the same old song he fills his glass and then he turns a memory on Cause it's a fool heart in memory And he sits patiently What the hell were you thinking? As she walked out the door He's got a fool and he sits patiently. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.